anybody there? I'm here. Hello, hello. There you are. Can you see me? I can see you fine. Hey, wonderful. How are you? And do you go by Jaime or Jaime Alejandro? Just Jaime will do today. Okay, <laughs> suave. Just do it. Is that your Nike t-shirt? Uh, it's it's actually a Snoopy t-shirt. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a soft spot for Snoopy. Uh, I played him in college uh, uh -huh. when we did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. So it's one of my favorite memories. And my wife saw this and she's like, you should get this. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally oh, getting how it. Sweet. How <laughs> sweet. Well, well I want to know all about you because I saw that you studied theater and I, oh, you know what? I, I, I have my headset on, but I'm not coming in through there. So hold oh, on. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I can hear you Am just I? fine. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, I had to hit mute accidentally. <laughs> well, okay, so tell me about you and, and how it is you're in uh, in Wyoming? Yeah, yeah. I have been raised in Wyoming since I was 10 years old. So this is uh -huh. this is home, and uh, I, I come from a family of musicians and hardworking women, so that's kind of where the story begins. And yeah, I mean, theater... Theater, it was just kind of a, a calling, but I, I've always been a writer. I'm a writer, director uh -huh. primarily, and then kind of get wrangled into acting every now and then, even though it's uh -huh. not my preferred mode of, of anything anymore. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I just want to write and direct and collaborate with people. That's really my, my favorite thing. And I have a job and I have a lovely family. I focus on short form works. That's really what I want to do. And right now I'm producing audio stuff. You know, I'm, I'm writing audio plays and trying to get those produced because I have the means to do it. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty low key kind of person. As long as mm -hmm. I get the writing done, that's, that's really all that matters to me. But I want to talk about you and I want to get to know more about you in this episode, which uh, I'm very excited about because you're a performer, you write, you do a little bit of everything too. And uh, it's always nice to see somebody who knows what they're doing and I get to pick your brain for a little bit, hopefully. <laughs> well knows what they're doing i'm learning um baptism by fire because <laughs> i don't come from a theater background people ask me oh did you do theater in high school and college is nope <laughs> i wrote a play uh and it got on stage six years ago and i keep revising it and updating it and making it current and people want to see it and i keep doing it when i can oh and that's amazing can you tell me about the play and what is it about the play that made you want to write it why did you have to write this play i guess i'll start there okay so so the play is called why would i mispronounce my own name but that was not the original name of the play when i first produced it i called it tell me your name mm. and the play is at its heart about othering and belonging it's about racism it's about being latino it's about being chicana it's about um, growing up in one socioeconomic class and moving into another one, although just a little bit. My next play that I'm just starting to work on is going to be called, well, the working title is Class Migrant, because mm. I'm very interested in exploring the themes of upward mobility, which in our country is, has declined so significantly. Oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, I feel like I'm of the generation where we could take advantage of affirmative action. We could go to law school, to medical school, become teachers, nurses, whatever, and that many of those doors are closed and that some of our children aren't having the opportunities we have, even though we ourselves now are well-educated well and established. Mm -hmm. So I practiced law for 30 years, oh. a little more than 30 years. And I worked as a civil rights lawyer and i took i was planning to take a year off this was about 12 years ago <laughs> and i wasn't planning to retire from being a lawyer i was just going to take a year off and kind of get my bearings and figure out what else i wanted to do it was our son's senior year in high school um i'd been a very busy working mom with a demanding career so I didn't get to go to all the soccer games and all the cross-country mm -hmm. meets. I went to a lot. Yeah. So I, I took a year off. And then in a previous life, I had also worked in journalism. Mm. So I've, I've gone between being a lawyer and a journalist, a lawyer. <laughs> and I ended up going back to working in journalism with 
what was then New America Media, which was an organization out of San Francisco. It doesn't exist anymore, but it worked with ethnic media around the country. And okay, I think that's I was, why I remember uh, it. Okay. Yeah, I was working on a women immigrants project that was funded by a foundation grant, and we were interviewing, but we were both producing stories, and we ran a fellowship program that worked with journalists from ethnic media, and I guess it's called legacy media rather than mainstream media. Mm. <laughs> so we would bring 10, 10 women journalists. Actually, we once had a, a guy. You applied for it and got selected. We had 10 journalists. We would bring them to Washington, D.C. We'd invite experts on immigration and gender issues and give journalists an opportunity to meet each other and to meet the experts so that they mm. could cover uh, cover a field more robustly, if you will. Yeah. And so when that project ended, after three years, I decided to go back and work on a novel that I had started 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, and they just put it aside. Uh, And the working title of that novel was um, The Cost of the Price of Admission. The Price of Admission. Mm -hmm. And it was the price of admission when you um, when you take advantage of programs like affirmative action, Mm -hmm. when you move from one socioeconomic class to another. So what are the trade-offs you make? Like, yes, you get a lot of education and that's wonderful, but in some ways it removes you from some of the, not the relationships, but you have experiences that if your family isn't well educated, they can't relate to. And this is such a powerful thing personally. I just have to comment on this because I remember leaving for college. I I did junior college, then I moved on to university. At the time, you know, my sister was just starting her college career in Mexico. She had, she was doing that there, but I was the first one to go to college here. But there was a book that I read in one of my classes by Richard Rodriguez. Do you know Hunger of Memory? I, I know Richard. I know yeah. Richard personally. And I can tell you, yeah. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you this because I was yet to reconcile or to even process what he was talking about in that book. And that book upset me. That book upset mm-hmm. me because I said, why? should somebody forget about their family? You know, how can this be an excuse to forget about your family? That was just kind of the the general idea that was tumbling around in my head. And I wrote a paper about it. I I had heated discussions with my, my awesome professor at the time. And I realize now, you know, we're talking 15 years ago that the man was right. And I had to accept that because that is probably the most painful truth of of what you're talking about so it's it's so important to talk about and it just barely clicked in my mind when i realized wow i have been removed from my own family for a very long time now and it i think it took that kind of distance uh for me to understand what he was talking about but that's just a beautiful notion that you're trying to capture there so i just wanted to comment yeah 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 so uh, so i read that book and i just thought oh man that's you know, they're trying to convince us that the the way to success is complete assimilation, yeah. to give up your native language, to reject your family, to buy into the argument that somehow you're better than your people. Mm. Because there yeah. there is there is this business of when a person of color is very successful, they want you to believe you're exceptional. And uh, you know. A lot of people fall for that. It's like, hmm, yeah, I must be pretty special to have been able to achieve this. Yeah. No, you, yeah. maybe maybe you work really hard, but so do a lot of other people. For me, I feel like, okay, I'm a really hard worker, but I've had some lucky breaks. Yeah. And I went to school with people who didn't go to college, who are just as capable, just as smart as I am. And for whatever reason, life circumstances, they didn't have the opportunities that I had. And and maybe also some of it was their own interests. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, Hunger of Memory was a very controversial book. And when I met uh, Richard Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who's a very nice man, and he, he's been very kind to me. He was like the first famous writer I met. And the first question he asked me is, did you grow up in a Mexican world or an American world? <laughs> and even though I grew up in the United States, 
I grew up in a very Mexican world and he grew up in a white community being one of very few Mexican Americans. Yeah. And I think it's such a different experience when you grow up. I went to segregated schools that were all Mexicano kids. Oh, wow. I mean, we were Americans. We, I grew up in South Texas, but we weren't immigrants. We've been there for generations, but we still spoke Spanish. Our parents spoke Spanish. Uh, we, it never crossed our mind that we wouldn't not speak Spanish or that we right. were somehow going to give up our culture and our language to fit it's in. It's not because a question. It's not even in your purview. It's, yeah. It's not in our purview. And, and that no matter what we did, white people weren't going to accept us or treat us as equals. Mm. That was a given. So mm. why in the world would we make trade-offs? Para qué? <laughs> uh -huh. And yeah. so right mm -hmm. from the get-go, I thought, wow, what a different experience to be the only, as opposed to growing up in a segregated world, the smartest kid was Mexicano, the less capable kid was Mexicano. There was no judgment attached right. to right. who we were ethnically. And, and in some ways, that was a beautiful thing because I didn't grow up with this sense that um, we didn't have the full range of humanity within our community. Right. And I think that kind of happens naturally, right? Where if you, if you feel like the outcast from the get-go, it's almost like some transmitters shut down a little bit, you know, because you're on the, on the defensive a lot of the time. And that's why I really resonated, that book resonated with me because um, I was raised in an LDS community. Um, I'm Catholic, you know, like there, there was a small Mexican community, but the predominant situation in my hometown was very much white LDS and that's about it, you know, but and for people who don't know what LDS is oh, Mormon. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Latter-day Saints. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, yeah. But I just love the, the d difference of experience within the Latinx, Latina, Chicano community. It's just so vast. Mm -hmm. That for you to have that experience versus what Mr. Rodriguez had to go through, um, th what was your takeaway? Did you get a sense of like, wow, so this is like my world is completely different. Can you elaborate a little bit on how that led you to start thinking more about your writing in, in that yeah. way? So when I met Richard, I had just left law and it was the first time I went into working in journalism. And before New America Media existed, there was an organization called Pacific News Service, also mm -hmm. based in San Francisco, that was mostly academics who were writing about uh, topics of interest to them, the war in politics in Southeast Asia and other parts mm -hmm. of the country. And I met a woman named Sandy Close, who was a founder of that and also the founder of New America Media. And it was through her that I met Richard. But I started writing about being Latino in the United States. So when I grew up, we weren't Latinos, right? We were Mexican-Americans. And in yeah. South Texas, the only Latino people who lived there at that time, we were all Mexican-American. It wasn't until I moved to California mm -hmm. that I realized that wow, there's people from all over Latin and South America who live here <laughs> and they're our neighbors and they're our community, but they're different from us. And it reminds me when I was in law school, I went to law school in the Midwest. There was a Chicana student at the University of Michigan that I worked with one summer at a migrant, uh, farm, migrant farm worker mm. legal aid office. And she had grown up in the Rio Grande Valley. Well, when she went to the University of Michigan, she would meet Chicanos from California who would ask her, where are you from? And she would say, I'm from Texas. Where in Texas? I'm from the valley. And as a, well, which valley? Well, in Texas, <laughs> just the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. So when she would meet people from California, it was this realization, oh my God, they have the Salinas Valley, the uh, San Joaquin yeah. Valley. <laughs> so your world, your world creates your reality right mm -hmm. and so i moved to california i came here to work for the mexican-american legal defense fund mm. and you know the name gives it away it was started out on behalf of the mexican-american community of the southwest which was experiencing and had historically experienced the same kind of discrimination as blacks but in california in the 80s 
we had a bunch of people who were coming from Central America who were fleeing the wars. Mm. It had been fueled by U.S. policy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and right. U.S. weapons and whatnot. So I started meeting people who were from El Salvador, Guatemala, and of course, there's always been some Cubans who've gone to various urban areas in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so working at MALDEF, you know, I began to see the issues more broadly uh, than just Mexican-Americans, though the experience of Mexican-Americans is a little bit different. And mm -hmm. I think that's why we get into these uh, disputes about what to call ourselves as a community or yeah. what we should be called. Yeah. Like some people detest the term Latinx, and it's not very popular among the general public. Mm -hmm. But I, I understand the desire to, to see what unites us and to think of what we as a large group of people could embrace as being helpful to us to achieve political power, equal yes. treatment. And yet we're very, very diverse. Mm -hmm. The experience of a Chicana who's been here several generations is different from somebody who comes from Argentina with class privilege mm -hmm. and maybe color privilege, right? right? Right. But if her last name is, uh, let's say, Perez, you know, she's she's going to be lumped into the same group as I am yeah. by people. It's a little giveaway, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And of course, yeah. you can be Latina and have an, a last name that is completely non-latino and you can look anyway <laughs> and be latina but so i started writing about issues uh of the latino community and how i got into writing was that when i was working at maldef i was seeing that we were winning lawsuits but we weren't winning in the court of public opinion mm. i remember being in denver colorado and we had just gotten a positive ruling from a federal judge about immigrant about what were then called limited english proficient children now they're called english learners yeah, yeah. but we had gotten um a positive ruling that the school district had to address their language issues and they couldn't just put them in a classroom and expect that if they spoke english louder the kids would understand so we get an editorial from the newspaper saying these out-of-town lawyers you know are want to hold these kids back they don't want them to learn english don't they realize that they're you know impairing their chances of succeeding in america of mm. course we want these kids to learn english right yeah. but we i've never seen any value in needing to let go of your native language whatever that might be and so I came back for, to the office in San Francisco and I was talking to one of my colleagues and she said, well, you should write an, an op-ed with your own point of view about it. Mm. I said, okay. So I wrote this piece and she placed it in the New York Times. And I thought, okay, I'm going to quit my job and become a writer. <laughs> that was just a, a shock to the system, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so I actually did quit my job. I saved money, quit my job. And then I did work in journalism for three years. And a lot of what I was writing about was the Latino community. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, let me see if I'm understanding this. States are trying to pass laws that prohibit, that make English the official language of that state. Mm -hmm. At the same time as I'm driving down this street and I'm seeing huge billboards in Spanish by banks, by cigarettes, or by liquor and mm -hmm. beer, wanting our business. So there's a disconnect between the reality of communities that don't yet speak English fluently or who may be more comfortable in their Spanish language. Mm -hmm. I, I want to write about that. I want to explore right. themes of what does it mean to be an American and to want to also hold on to a culture that is not perceived as white American culture. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting about culture and food because <laughs> there's so much about Mexican food and culture yeah. that people love. And I had a, a colleague who was taking a, a writing class with me, a theater class, and she said she had grown up in Tucson. And she said, oh, we loved everything about tucson in the mexican community we love the churches we love the 
festivals. We loved the food. We loved everything but the Mexicans. Right? <laughs> and wow. um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, that wasn't her personal view, but she was saying, "You're right. We, yeah. you know, we want to take the good things about Mexicans, but we want to reject them as people." And part of humanity. it is, because, yeah. right? Is there's a perception that we don't assimilate that we don't if you really loved america you would give up your home language and you would speak only english and you would do everything you can to americanize mm -hmm. and yeah. one of the reasons that we don't do that and what's different about us as a people is that we have been physically present in this continent and in North America, in what is now the United States of America, mm -hmm. before white people came, yep. right? Because yep. we are a mixture of indigenous and the Spanish conquistadores. Yeah, you know, it's it's who we are. Look at us. Right. I always <laughs> thought that was so funny growing up in Evanston, Wyoming, which is in the southwestern corner of Wyoming, uh, right by Utah, that Utah border. That was Mexico. So, you know, if we ever got down or got got a little bummed out that we were far from home, we were like, well, technically, you know, this yeah. was Mexico, even though, I mean, we are so far up north. It is ridiculous. True. And people forget that. People forget yeah. the uh, the massive land grab that that was. Well, um, there there's a part in my play where I show this map of the United States and Mexico, but it shows the border before the Mexican-American War. And I explained that, you know, this was Mexico until the year before the gold rush. Mm. And of course, you know, I'm not like rah, rah, this was Mexico. They still were a colonized people. Right. They still right. were taking over lands that were native people's lands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so part of my work is simply wanting to, to make people have a broader understanding of the history of our communities mm, and that right. our experience as immigrants is very different from people who came from either Northern Europe or Southern Europe. They had an ocean separating them. We have constant coming and going for hundreds of years. So mm -hmm. the language doesn't die out. It isn't because people who are settled here aren't learning English. It's a, there's a lot of new people. Right. It's and constant we traffic. Order. Yeah. There's no benefit for us to not know the language of our neighbors. <laughs> right. So let's talk about the play itself and how that came to be something that you chose to perform. Because you mentioned the theater wasn't really something that you that that was part of your life earlier on, but um, how did you decide to put this together and what was the decision like to, to say, Hey, I'm going to be in it. I'm going to do it. I don't need anything else. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, I had started a novel 30 years ago. And when I took what was going to be a year off from my work as a lawyer, and then I went to work in journalism. Then when that ended, I started looking back at my novel. And I was telling a friend of mine, I go, yeah, you know, I just don't have the energy. I feel mm -hmm. it was set during one of the protagonists was uh, a Vietnam veteran. And it's like, oh, man, Vietnam was 100 years ago. And now we've had the Iraq War and all of that. So a friend of mine who is actually a radiologist, a physician, told me, and I met her, a black woman. She and I uh, met in the first writing class I ever took. And I, it was 30 years ago, and I was mm. in a room full of white people, and I saw one brown face. <laughs> and during the break, I went and introduced myself to her, and we became friends. And we both were. She was a young doctor. I was a young lawyer in San Francisco, starting out our professional careers, but we both had a love of writing. Mm. And so we found ourselves taking a writing class. And so my friend Diane said to me, why don't you take this class with me? It's at a theater, but the guy who teaches it is so good at bringing out your story. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay. So it was something to do with my friend once a week on Sundays. So I started going to this class and I thought that like we would be doing writing exercises, right? <laughs> but it was like 
no, stand up in front of eight people or however many people were in the class and tell me a story. Mm. Okay. And so you would write something and then you would show up the next Sunday and you'd get 15 minutes to tell a story and they'd give you feedback. And a lot of the material that I was presenting was about being a minority, being judged by how I pronounce my name, my uh, disappointment or anger at the consistent mispronunciation of Spanish names, whereas newscasters take great pride in correctly pronouncing French names or German names. Mm. And it's like, what, why do we get so little respect? Mm -hmm. And it's because Spanish is considered a low-class language. And you know, languages have status. Mm. And a lot of people don't ever stop to think about that. But in every country, languages and people who speak those languages are in a pecking order. And in the United States, Spanish is a low-status language. If you go to Guatemala, uh, indigenous languages are low-status languages compared to Spanish. Mm. If you go to Europe, if you're in, uh, let's say you're in England, and you happen to be a native speaker of Portuguese, that has a lower status. Mm. Czech languages, you know, Eastern European languages. Yeah. And so mainstream media reflects the people who run it, right? And that's why I would be upset when, you know, they wouldn't bother to learn to say Spanish names correctly. So I would come with little stories about that. And then um, we would have class shows. At the end of each 10-week class, there would be a little class show. Mm. And my friends would come to see my tell stories. <laughs> and I've always loved loved collecting stories. And as a, as a lawyer, you are a storyteller. Mm. That is the role of a lawyer. You are telling a story. If you're a public defender, you are seeking to explain the life of your client. And if, in fact, you think your client's going to be convicted or even after they do, seeking to humanize and have people understand what may have led this person to behave in ways mm. that ended up being harmful to someone else. If you represent businesses as a corporate lawyer and you're working on a merger and acquisition, your job is to tell the story of why this merger should happen. Why is it that my client, this big business, should be allowed to merge with this other big client? What service are we going to provide to the, mm -hmm. to the universe? And so lawyers are storytellers. And so I would perform these little 15-minute vignettes and my friends would come and see them. And then the guy who taught the class, who's a very well-respected director of Solo Place in the Bay Area, said to me, you know, you have a full hour-long show <laughs> if, if you wanted to put it together. And so I started working with him separately mm -hmm. from that class, and we put together this show around the theme of names to explore the uh, issues of identity, who belongs, who doesn't, judgments we make about people. And I'm a big I love comedy and humor, so I inject a, a lot of humor, some of which, uh, you know, people get. I can always tell how much rasa is in the audience based <laughs> how much laughter there is on certain things. And I, oh and I, like, to inject, I like to inject Spanish into my play contextually mm -hmm. uh, so that people understand the gist. You don't have to understand every word. And I know for a lot of, of um, Latino writers, whenever we use Spanish, sometimes if we're in writing groups, people say, well, I feel, I feel left out if I don't understand what's going on, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know what? When we read, there's always stuff we don't understand. When I'm reading about the Great Gatsby, I don't understand what rich people do who go on European holidays. <laughs> I don't have familiarity with that. Yeah, it's not an affront. Right. It's not an insult. It, right. You just got to go right. with it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. okay, I don't know what this means, but it probably means something, and I'll figure it out as I read along. Exactly. But often people, if you put in Spanish words, it's like, well, I feel left out. Yeah. It's like, well, well, sorry. Join, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, so I started uh, working with this director, 
And uh, like a lot of things, I got a lucky break. I was at a party and I met a woman and she uh, was the chair of a community theater. And we just got to chatting and I said, oh, I wrote a play. <laughs> and she said, we're, looking for, we're looking for work by California artists that has ne that have never been produced uh, a, a work that's never been produced. Hmm. I said, well, that would be me. <laughs> so on my way home, I said to my husband, Oh, I met this nice lady. And we talked about, you know, she's, she's a chair of this community theater. So I send her my play. And a few weeks later, I got a phone call for, or an email from them saying, we're interested in producing your play. And that's how my play got on stage. And it hmm. used to be called, tell me your name. And so um, it was two weekends, but people came and people liked it. Oh, and great. then I applied, I applied to some theater, uh, some fringe festivals. I went to a fringe fest festival in Fresno, California, and it was very well received. Then I applied to the fringe festival in San Francisco, I guess in 2017, and it was very well received mm. and it, it got an award, uh, best of fringe. Nice. They, they gave it. To 10 different plays there's maybe 30 or 40 plays and then i got um what is called uh marsh rising the marsh theater in san francisco is very well known for producing solo plays oh cool and cool. so you if if the people think your play has some legs let's say <laughs> they'll they'll give you a marsh rising and it's a one night performance mm. and you have to promote it yourself. I mean, they'll advertise it. And the woman who's the artistic director, that's the first time she'll see your work. And then you're either offered a run or you're not. Hmm. And so she, she and I met and she made some suggestions about, she asked me some questions about uh, places where she thought I could go deeper into the subject. Hmm. And um, I kept working with the director and then I got a run. And she asked me, do you think that you could um, get people to come to your play for a six-week run twice a week? And I said, well, I, I'd give it my best. You know, I don't know. I've never had a run before. Mm -hmm. And so the play opened in October, and it was very, very popular. Mm -hmm. And I had a few sold-out houses, and they extended it oh, for great. another two weeks. And then they extended it again and moved it to a theater in Berkeley because they also have a theater in Berkeley. So I ended up having my play on stage for five months. Wow. And he kept coming. And my play is very, uh, it's very autobiographical. It's about growing up in a small South Texas town that was very segregated. Mm -hmm. It talks about the history of the Mexican American people, everything from when Mexico was, you know, the Southern states were part of Mexico to experiences Mexican-American soldiers had during World War II, mm. uh, connected to my own family and a community near where I grew up. Mm. And then uh, the importance of affirmative action in helping me get to college and become a lawyer. And it ties in with some of the work I did as a lawyer at MALDEF. And then I'm always bringing in contemporary events. Mm. So as Conditions change when the Trump administration came in and they were putting children in cages. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that worked into my play. Mm -hmm. My most recent iteration, because I'm back on stage only for, for five shows. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, my play had not been on stage since before COVID. Oh, so yeah. um, I've incorporated, you know, the rise of Asian hate crime. Um, murder of George Floyd. And and my goal is not just to talk about discrimination against Latinos, but to make us all sensitive to the fact that we all have biases and prejudices. Mm -hmm. They're just wow. about different things. And most of those we inherit. We grow up in homes and we live in societies where we consistently get messages that some people are lacking something, that something about people makes them less than this other group. Right. And so much of those differences have been, have been heightened in 
these times of political division and we've we've directed hate towards certain groups and that hate has real consequences so mm -hmm. when the guy drove eight hours from a dallas suburb to a walmart in el paso he went with a specific goal of helping to stop the hispanic invasion of texas he said that mm -hmm. now he said, this isn't related to the trump administration but his rhetoric mm -hmm. the language he used was exactly what you were reading on social media what they were showing on fox news where you had these hordes of invaders mm -hmm. and i want people to understand that when we direct hate against any group it has consequences that are very painful and and bring hurt and tragedy to communities the pulse nightclub shooting mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be your community for you to care about it and for you to begin exploring well what are my biases where do they come from do i really believe those things i've heard them over and over again and do i want to hold on to that information does it harm me to believe that does it harm others do i want to pass that on to my children right and that takes such uh, such a level of self-awareness for a parent or an individual to step outside of their group, their community, whatever, to say, are we doing things the right way? Yeah. It takes such humility that we don't have in this country, it seems. We don't, we don't have the ability to step outside of ourselves and, and say, where are we going? It's just full speed ahead. It is. And yeah. I think we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing that is not helpful to other people? Like there's a lot of homophobia in, there's homophobia in the Latino community. There's anti-blackness mm -hmm. in the Latino community. That's not to say it doesn't exist in other communities. Mm -hmm. It does too, right? Yeah. Uh, there's anti-blackness in virtually every community. And one of the beauties of a book like Ibram Kendi's uh, stamp from the beginning, which won a, I don't know if it won a Pulitzer or a National Book Award, it is the history of racist ideas. Wow. You can have racist ideas without really being a racist. You may not act on those beliefs, but we have been inculcated with so many beliefs about the inferiority of black people, which was necessary in order to establish the system of the enslavement of people mm -hmm. and so he traces the history of how the catholic church uh back when you know the, the the spanish and the portuguese were exploring the new world and mm -hmm. had to create pecking orders about different groups of people so that you could in essence colonize them and exploit them and then those ideas kept being passed on. I take on colorism. We have a lot of colorism in the Latino community, and it exists in the black community too. Hmm. The lighter you are, the closer you're, the closer you are to whiteness yeah. in appearance, the better you are. And so my tias might say, I know pues para mí todos son iguales, right? Everybody. <laughs> right. And you hear All the same. them admiring, you hear them admiring light-skinned children. Yeah. Purely is, because they're lighter. just because they're lighter, yeah. I mean, it's it's right. part of the indoctrination of our own people who who feel like that is the ideal. I mean, you look at it now with like all of the television that and programming in Mexican communities. I mean, that's a a lot of American or or blonde people in a lot of those roles. I mean, like you said, who are at the forefront in charge of these communications systems are typically the ones who are at the highest level of the caste. Yeah, and they're typically lighter skinned, just like we saw in the black community, the people who are able to go to the black colleges, something like Latinos didn't have separate institutions. Mm -hmm. We had nothing. So even though it was horrible that there was uh, official segregation for centuries in our country, mm -hmm. in the black community, they had separate colleges that allowed them to create a class of doctors and lawyers and mm -hmm. dentists and other professionals, but most of those people were 
lighter skinned. Yeah. Um, and and you created almost a caste system. Another excellent book is the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. One of the things mm-hmm. I love about what I do is I spend a lot of time doing research about race and racism right. and prejudice. Yeah. I can imagine. And it, it fits right into what I did as a lawyer, but now it isn't researching cases, it's researching social science. So I stay very engaged. And then by happenstance, uh, lawyers who would see my play would say, could you come to my law firm and just talk about the, your work? Mm. Because some of the work also is set in the experience of being a lawyer of color. And so then I have this whole other thing, especially during the pandemic, where I perform on Zoom to law firms and colleges, law schools, and then have small group discussions about prejudice. Oh, that's incredible. people, People share very honestly, and I think it's because the play... The play just lays out stories hmm. where people can get to see what it might feel like to be mistreated because of your color or because of your race or your ethnicity. Oh, my goodness. You have taken me on a wild ride here of so many beautiful truths, and your journey is just phenomenal that I'm, I'm almost speechless and so, <laughs> okay, so excited. I mean, but, don't be <laughs> but it's... It's fascinating because you have such a way, and I hadn't connected the dots. I think one of the things that strikes me now is, as a lawyer, that is exactly what you have been trained to do. And and now it feels like this is a culmination of all of the different types of work that you've done as, as one work. And uh, I feel that that's got to be such a powerful exciting feeling right now it it is very exciting and people ask me well how do you make a transition from being a lawyer to being a playwright and solo performer and a few minutes ago you asked me like when you started to write this how did you think that you would be the person to act on it Mm. or what the play would look like it since it started out as kind of monologues yeah. On stage, yeah. the development, and since so much of my story is, uh, the, the heart of the play is my own personal story, but then I connect it to world, not world events, it's really about what happens in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there really wasn't another way to do it other than to <laughs> incorporate it into my story. But the leap isn't far, because as I said to you earlier, Lawyers are storytellers. That's right. And as a lawyer, you are collecting information from many different places. You're reading cases. You're interviewing people to get their version of the facts. Mm. Uh, You're seeking to understand how do I explain why I'm part of this lawsuit? Why am I representing this client? And what is his or her or their story that I need to tell? And it's the same in journalism. You're putting together information for many places. And so those are the same skills I bring to writing of my play. And even though the play remains with the same name, uh, it does change from one showing. I mean, people who saw the play three weeks ago, if they see it next week, they're going to see a slightly different work Mm. because i reordered some things i i moved a scene from one place it's constantly to constantly evolving and you're looking to make it better or just it's constantly yeah. evolving and i could change it uh i could change it every week but of course you know i can't because it would be too hard to remember the lines but it's been very gratifying and i'm excited to start work on a different piece mm. piece uh the one that i said is about working title is class migrant yeah and exploring issues of class mobility in this country and the lack thereof and how sad it is that we're in a place with enormous stagnation with um with the wealthy getting wealthier and wealthier and poor people getting poorer and poorer and many of us if you're a if you're a person of color who is engaged in social justice work you're you've got your foot in both camps you know, I know a lot of people who have quite a bit of wealth and a lot of class privilege and 
color privilege. Mm -hmm. I also encounter in my everyday life people who are undocumented, people mm -hmm. who are recently arrived, people who um, are really struggling. Oh. And I, I care deeply about how do I make sure that these people get a chance to, to be treated fairly. Mm. That's so and powerful. I, yeah. Yeah. And as a lawyer and a person with a good education, I myself have a lot of privilege and I have a lot of information. I met a senora walking with two, a Guatemalan woman, an indigenous woman. I was out hiking one day and she was out with these two little girls, ages two and five. Mm. And I just started talking to her. Mm -hmm. And hearing her story, which was a very sad story, she had been selling street food and the police had told her she couldn't anymore because she oh. needed to get a license. Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah. okay, she didn't have, she didn't know how she was going to pay her rent. Uh, she was living in a very precarious situation. I think, all right, I can pick up the phone and call the executive director of an immigrant rights group. Mm -hmm. I can help connect her to services i found her, her little girl wasn't enrolled in school it's like okay how can i be of service and it's such a minimal thing for me to do mm -hmm. whereas for her it's so overwhelming yeah yeah where, where do you start and she was speaking to her muchachitas in an indigenous language although she spoke spanish mm -hmm. that was not her native language right and so yeah as you mentioned they are several uh spots removed from you know the the hierarchy that you've established i mean it, there's just so many barriers there uh, right. for them to get to where they need to be that it's um it's devastating because there's many folks like that who fall through the cracks yep yeah and so as a person of the kind of privilege that i have i get to see life in both places mm -hmm. and i wonder about whether people who are well educated well to do how aware are they of the mm -hmm. hardship and the the difficulty that people encounter every single day that we don't have to think about? Yeah. Oh, my word. And, you know, I want to ask you one more question to be mindful of your time here. But I really think that um, you're doing some some phenomenal work in this area. And it's so inspiring. And it really does. Just talking to you for 45 minutes really inspires me to serve more, to do better, to use my, my work, even if it's just a small fraction of it, to educate others on what's going on. But if there's anything else that you'd like to, to add to folks who are just getting started, especially young folks of color who want to do something in the arts. Yeah. I, I, for first of all, I would say, write your stories. There's so much healing that happens from being able to tell our stories, even if they never get published, even if you don't have a chapbook or a short story or a play. Writing our stories is a very healing process. Be part of a group of other people who are interested in writing and the creative life. And it doesn't have to be writing. It could be uh, painting. Um, Surround yourselves with people who are doing similar things. That doesn't mean, you know, your whole network has to be people from, <laughs> from the arts world. No, of course not. But find one or two people at least who really get what you're after. But be aware of how much privilege you have that you speak English, that you have a high school education that you have a college education, if you're already at that level, there are so many ways that you can help people. And it doesn't have to be monu something monumental. It could be something as simple as finding the name of an organization and a phone number and giving it to someone and say, calling it yourself first and finding out, do you help people in these circumstances? And saying, you can call this number. This is what they do there. Uh, you can refer people to a food bank, to a church. There's just so many ways if you take stock of the privileges you have. And I know that sometimes it's very hard to think of ourselves as privileged because we see that people around us have so much more than we have, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, 
even having being documented is a huge privilege in our community. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are living in the shadows for fear of so don't don't ever let go of any dream you have of being an artist because even if that dream is deferred for decades you can always return to it i mean i wrote a play in my 60s when i'm on stage <laughs> <laughs> and that is a phenomenal note to end on and again just want to thank you for your time and there's so much that you've given us and any potential listener on this idea of being of service and you also have such great kindness and openness uh, about your work and i mean I'm, I'm just really blown away by the contributions that you have made to to the community and it really has been an inspiring episode for me i mean i well, selfishly say that. this i mean it's been such an honor that, and, and uh, i was looking at some of the episodes and some of the work that you've done and i saw uh, an austin artist uh, I don't remember her name. I think it's Uribe or something oh, like Leti that. Leticia. Yes. And I'm yeah, going to yeah. be in Austin uh, in two weeks and I'm going to look her up. I'm going to email her and find her because I'd love to meet her. <laughs> oh, she's so wonderful. I, yeah. 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 Um, I think it's, it's also another thing that uh, people who are interested in the arts, young, young writers, young poets, listen to podcasts of conversations with other artists so that you can you can know that there's no one way to develop your artistry, your craft, but just pitch, you know, keep at it a little bit at a time. Oh, that's amazing. It's an absolute pleasure. And I really wish you the best. I hope that you whenever so you work on something, let me know. I'd love to continue the conversation and to me hear too. more of your stories. And I want to hear more about you. So I'm going to keep following you and reading. Okay. <laughs> All gracias. Right. Muchas Adios, gracias. Cuídate. We'll Good be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.